Hi, I'm Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools. In today's edition of Inside Education, I'll interview faculty and students from Mendocino College on the topic of equity in education. Specifically, we'll discuss how Mendocino College is working to close the education gap for many subpopulations of students. My guests for this hour are Minerva Flores, Director of Institutional Effectiveness, Research, Equity, and Grants at Mendocino College, and Mendocino College student Leonardo Rodriguez. We're going to hear from both of them about how Mendocino College is working to close the achievement gap for many subpopulations of students. This show was pre-recorded on Tuesday, July 27, 2021. Ms. Flores, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners today and let them know what you do as Director of Institutional Effectiveness in the areas of research, equity, and grants at Mendocino College. Great. Uh, Michelle, thank you for the invitation today. Um, What I do, it's been, um, I think in 2013, the position was reworked. Um, Originally, we were just a, a research department. Um, And then there was a shift because we were having all these um, initiatives coming down from the chancellor's office. And as a way to address those initiatives and um, properly have uh, staff and data available to make institutional decisions, they expanded the position to include um, efficiency and also grants. Equity came later. So part of my position is to look at um, overall numbers of the college, who's attending, Um, Are we reaching the correct areas in our uh, service district? Are we um, accurately focusing on communities that are in most need, especially communities of color? Are we then looking at our data in a way that we can pinpoint any equity gaps within our completion? Um, So looking at who's completing, who's transferring, who's maybe not being as successful in certain courses, and then kind of projecting what our population of students is going to look like in the future using some local uh, California Department of Education data looking at K-12. The grants part comes of it uh, as we look at our student population and what the needs are, then we're able to go to for federal or state grants and apply for them in order to fulfill some of the needs that students have indicated as being important. So we do some focus groups, we do some surveys in order to obtain that information and analysis to properly go for or apply for grants that are applicable to our community, student population, and that will further increase student success in the future. Equity came later on in, in my position. And in the equity portion, we as soon as I began at Mendocino College under this position, we began a relationship or a contract with the, with the Center for Urban Education out of USC. And that required us to use these equity monies that the chancellor's office had given, given us. And we were able to uh, go with this contract with uh, the Center for Urban Education in order to strategically use our funds to make the most impact of, in, on students' lives. Many times uh, funds are given and you think, well, we're going to pour them into tutoring. We're going to pour them into all these other additional resources for students. But if we don't, we aren't intentional on, well, who's actually using those resources? And is there a way that we can change either how we present or provide access to those resources, especially to students that are um, being disproportionately impacted, um, having equity gaps? How can we then change 
our approach to providing the, that access to students. So in our equity work, the focus is that the student becomes the beneficiary of our great work. But the work starts with us as, as a practitioners and as an institution. What are we doing that uh, is either contributing to equity gaps? What can we improve upon? And what practices do we have to let go? Because let's say we inherited them um, through the, through the uh, history of the college. So I work a lot with the vice presidents. I, look a lot, I work a lot with faculty at sometimes classified staff since they're the first touch point with many of our students in terms of services. So that kind of encompasses the work that I do. It's been very fulfilling, especially with um, now that we have that equity lens and looking at um, how our data is disaggregated and how we can really be intentional with our monies and with our services at the college. And when you say equity gap, what we're really talking about is that after 30 years of educational reform, there continues to be a significant persistent gap between white, predominantly middle-class students and their poor and non-white peers. Mm -hmm. Despite some evidence that more recent comprehensive systemic reform efforts may be raising passing rates on statewide achievement tests across all demographic groups, many schools and districts are still not achieving success with all students. And this is the achievement gap that we're discussing today. Yes. In the media today, there's a lot of debate about critical race theory and whether the concept is taught in public schools. Being the topic of today's interview is equity in education. Would you take a minute and share how the concept of equity differs from critical race theory? Sure. It is because the, there is an emphasis on race, and you see it in the title in critical race theory, there's always some confusion as how equity is now an exact replica of critical race theory, and it's not. Critical race theory is not a theory present in K-12, so children aren't learning it. Actually, it, it would be inappropriate to teach that to that age group. And it came more out of the 1970s and 80s from law scholars, so Black or Indigenous or other people of color, exploring how certain laws, policies contribute to racist practices within our systems or agencies as a country. So it's not focusing on the oppressor and the oppressed. It's, foc it's focusing on what has happened within the history of our country, relatively new history, Many people think, well, it started during the conquest, and we know that for thousands of years we had people inhabiting um, this country and the, and the countries of all the Americas, but what we term as the United States is relatively new. So when we look at uh, critical race theory is looking at the dynamics within certain structures and certain policies, for instance, like in the 1930s, government officials deemed areas core financial risks and those were areas that are predominantly people of color. So critical race theory is looking at actions like that. It's also looking at, you know, because of people or government officials deeming areas poor or, or bad investments, uh, banks wouldn't allow loans. So this is uh, not overtly indicating that it's uh, looking at blacks or indigenous people or people of color in order to invest. It is indirectly affecting those people. 
Um, we can also look at, they also look at patterns of discrimination in housing policies and housing zones, um, not um, building affordable housing in areas that are too close to uh, areas that are more affluent. So critical race theory is looking at, at those types of larger structures. And it's not, it's looking more at how we as a society are perhaps replicating those things in some of the practices. And one example that I read about was, um, uh, it's great on, it's called the anti-racist education show. I forgot it, it's, it's, a, it's a neat, it's a neat um, link. But they talked, about, they talked about, let's say a man um, opens a hotel and he, in this person, really hates disabled people. So he creates a hotel that is not at all welcoming to disabled people. He doesn't, you know, there are no ramps, there are no parking spaces indicated for, you know, a disabled or a differently abled people to come into the, to the hotel. So he made it, this person made it so it's very difficult to access. So then he decides to sell it and a new owner comes in. Now the new owner may not have, has you know, loves disabled people, he has no issue and nor does the staff. However, because the, the building or the practices are still there, although that person is not discriminating personally, it's not a racist person or people who discriminates against disabled, because of the building, they're inadvertently replicating and perpetuating bad uh, access to disabled people. And that's how we look at our institutions. I think critical race theory, I'm not, I'm not a scholar in it, but in understanding critical race theory, it's looking at something like that, that we've inherited some of these practices and it's our due diligence to really examine them to see what inequities are, are being perpetuated. And so it, it's not looking at the oppressor and the oppressed necessarily, it's looking at what within the structure is really leaving people out and being very critical and analyzing it. And again, it focuses on the practitioner. It's not focusing on um, the people that are to benefit from it. You know, if I were to then make all these ADA uh, compliance issues, I put in ramps. Now I know that this is the, the, those that are disabled or differently able, they're gonna benefit from my uh, focus and intentional effort to make this more accessible. Um, so that's more, kind of general on critical race theory. It's not taught in K-12, and it, it would be inappropriate to present it to that age group. Um, but it does aim at looking at um, how our systems of government or agencies are developed and what laws and policies are placed that create further barriers or perpetuate um, ideas of the past. And those ideas of the past, though we may not, uh, we are not racist, we are not intentionally being so, those practices of the past are still alive and present. And then it's our duty um, to really look at that and analyze that. Now, when we talk about equity in education, that's completely different. We are looking at data that disaggregates by race and ethnicity, but that's really to look at what are the gaps? Are, are indigenous students failing at a higher rate? Why is that so? Is there a dropout rate for Latino students? Why is that so? And then it's looking at what can we do as practitioners? Again, it's looking at the practitioner, the institution, what changes can be made in order to mitigate those gaps? Many times it's creating new resources that are focused on student actual needs. You know, what, one of the examples that I love from Lasana Hotep from UC Berkeley, I hope I get this right, but he talked about 
bathrooms, right? There's, you know, generally the, the men's bathroom moves faster than the women's bathroom. He's like, well, you see this moving fast and you say, okay, something's happening in the women's bathroom. They're, they're not being efficient with their time in the bathroom. So the way we would approach it, and sometimes the way we approach education is that we invest a lot of research and then we get grad students to write their thesis and they get focus groups and say, well, what are you doing that makes you use the bathroom faster? Okay, so they get this list of high impact practices. They give it to the users and say, this is what you have to do in order to be more efficient in the bathroom so you can get in and out. So that focuses it on the user. What about creating more bathrooms? That's a structural change. That's a, that's a change focused on the practitioner. And what we wanna do in education is really take that self-reflective look and saying, what are we doing that are further perpetuating certain gaps? And it could be, um, I don't have enough literature that is reflective of my community. I had a, a wonderful professor that said, you know, I was reading The Great Gatsby and they're still teaching it at these schools. And it's like, that's about the East Coast. That's not even about our area. That's about a lot of rich people. That's not about our area. So how is it relevant to the student experience? And as you hear from students, um, students still want to have a self-acceptance and respect within the schools. The RP group did the whole study, and of the six factors that lead to successful student completion, one of them is a sense of belonging and acceptance and respect. So equity is completely different because we're looking at what we can change as practitioners, as professionals in education, in order to best accommodate the needs of students so they're successful. We're looking at students come in with various levels of social capital of knowledge. We get students that came from schools with 12, I, 12 AP courses, and they were, they were private or they were extremely well-funded. We're a very geographically isolated in rural community. So our schools may not have that advantage of having um, you know, 12 AP courses or having uh, personal counseling coaches that come with you after school. How do we provide the appropriate resources for students that do not have them so they're on par with students that have all this social capital so they have the same outcome? That's what equity is all about. How can we ensure that regardless of what a student brings into the classroom or as a student, we are having the same outcome. They're still succeeding at the same level finding employment, transferring, and we're mitigating equity gaps by ensuring that the same number that come in are reflective of the same number that we're able to graduate in terms of race and race and ethnicity. You're listening to Minerva Flores, Director of Institutional Effectiveness, Research, Equity, and Grants at Mendocino College. In 2017, California Community College Chancellor's Office adopted the Vision for Success, which has at its focus student success and completion through an equity lens. Would you explain how that's been implemented at Mendocino College? Why is the equity lens so critical to the vision of success, and how does it help students learn better or achieve more? What happened is that we were, the the entire community, California Community College Chancellor's system, all the colleges, um, were a couple of things came up. We were having students accumulating too many units and not transferring and not completing a degree. So these were kind of trends we were seeing. We weren't seeing students complete appropriate time. So if a degree is supposed to take two or three semesters or four, they were taking longer. 
Um, so the longer you spend in these core, in a community college, you know, it, the, the probability that you may transfer, you may complete, will be lower than those that, that have a, a more direct path. The other part, aside from unit completion and low transfer and low overall and high unit accumulation, is also students were not who were completing or pursuing a career technical education certificate were not finding employment. So there's all these things that we're supposed to do to community college, and we serve as a system two million. So how do we mitigate that? How do we address those issues? One of the things that came up was, you know what, we have to front load students to demystify the college process. And for some, I'll tell you right now, financial aid is probably one of the hardest systems to understand because there's so many layers to it of how you can qualify. So part of, part, one part of the vision of success is as, as a funding mechanism that came in to kind of um, address these issues is the student success support program. And it was to front load students with um, good orientation, scaffolding this information. So they're able to come into college with all these other kind of uh, external things that make you a fabulous student before you get into the classroom, having your financial aid, having your books, um, having met with a counselor. So we knew that we had to kind of surround the student with these holistic services and more prior to them being in the classroom. Because as you speak to some students, not having your books, being on a wait list, not having a clear path, that is a lot of stress for a student that's coming into the, to the classroom. So we try to demystify that. The other part was looking at it through an equity lens. So seeing who are the students that are being left out or, or who are not uh, transferring or achieving at the same level as let's say their, their white student counterparts. And the equity lens is really looking at how we can be intentional and focus our services to best provide services to those that are most in need. And when you look at you know, our college, we probably have 40% Latino. We have one of the highest percentages of Native American students compared to other colleges in the state of California, community colleges which is around five to 6%, which is low, but higher um, than the national average, which is about not even 1%. So how do we properly address the, the needs of these students? A lot of it comes from data analysis, looking at where these students are, or where we're losing them, where we have to do more follow-up with retention or completion. And it does require um, a lot of in focus on student services. Are we doing enough to prompt the student or to prepare the student to be successful in the classroom? And also with student faculty professional development. Part of it is like, well, we can do all these fabulous things, but are we ensuring that when a student hits the classroom, that they're having an experience in education that is best reflective of, their, of, of the richness that they bring, of the capital that they bring into the classroom? And for us, it's been a lot of professional development for faculty. So one of the things that we did is that for faculty that participated in our faculty equity project and our partnership with the Center for Urban Education is that we disaggregate all our data by subject and by discipline. And in many cases, by instructor. And then they looked at where these gaps were. And then they started asking these hard questions because doing this, this work is hard. Because it, it, it's not blaming anyone, but it's questioning 
um, our own practices on um, why is this happening and is it something that I can change either in my curriculum? Sometimes it's as easy as a syllabus. The syllabus is almost a contract between the, the faculty member and the student. Now, if you say, I don't want you to be late, no excuses, no, no um, work to be turned, a, turned in late, that's the first message that you give to a student. For students that are coming from large families where they contribute financially or they have children or they live in a geographically isolated area in our district, that becomes difficult. So then it, be, it starts with the, the practitioner saying, why do I do that? And the best response I got from one of our chemistry faculty members who's no longer with us, he went to another school. He said, I teach the way I was taught. He's like, I can't do that anymore because I was taught to be super ultra competitive and to go to a research school. He's like, I'm obviously not at a research school because I wanna teach this subject. So he really had to be introspective and saying, why do I do this? Um, and that's, I think, where a lot of the fabulous work comes into play. That's where choosing, let's say, books that are more relevant to students, or even if it's a book that may not share the same characteristics as your student population, but if, but if the theme can be um, similar, that's powerful. And, that's, and the other work that's been going on, which I'm really excited about, is the role of assessment. Why do we assess and do we have to assess that way? Many times it's very prescriptive and it's a standardized test or it's a top-down approach. And it's like, why do we do this? Does it tell us anything more about our student, the student's ability than their work does? So there's, it's a constant questioning and a reinventing and um, kind of replenishing um, this, the resources a faculty member have. And we've expanded it also to our classified staff. Our classified staff might be the first person a student, a student meets upon coming to the college. And it's usually a classified staff member that says, no, you're gonna do this, you're not gonna go away. <laughs> I know it's hard, but we're gonna work through this to get, you, to get you the services you need. And many times right now they're doing the caring campus um, which is to provide a more welcoming experience to students and give them the resources necessary so that they, so that they are retained, that they follow through. Um, that's some of the work we've been doing. It's been heavily on the instructional side, but now we're taking it into other dimensions of the college and how we analyze our use of funds, our use of resources, and where we are being focused and intentional with our efforts to retain, retain students and have students come to the college. If COVID taught, taught us anything, is that there are a lot of gaps and services that we need to provide to students. Technology, access to technology, um, especially for those that live in geographically isolated places where you can't even get cell phone reception. So it's like, how do we address the needs of students? It can't just be, you know, well, you have to find a computer on your, on your own time it became no, the college needs to provide these resources to students in order for them to be successful. So the, the focus is that the student becomes the beneficiary of all these wonderful uh, practices, but yet the change is coming from, from us and the institution. 
You're listening to Minerva Flores, the Director of Institutional Effectiveness, Research, Equity, and Grants at Mendocino College. I'm Michelle Hutchins, your County Superintendent of Schools, and this is Inside Education. Our subject today is equity in education. So, Ms. Flores, is it possible for curricular excellence to coexist with culturally relevant teaching? Does altering a curriculum to be less Eurocentric hold students to a less high standard? Absolutely, it can coexist. I think that's one of the fears that people that people have. It's like, well, if I make these changes, am I quote unquote dumbing down what I do? No, I think that it requires a lot of planning and self reflection. But to integrate some of these culturally relevant teaching parts, which is taking one thing is, is understanding who's in your room, who's in the room, who's your classroom, who are the students in the classroom, um, what type of materials you're going to have for them. It's really looking and analyzing at your, your community. It doesn't dumb down curriculum. If anything, it enriches it. One thing that, that I've learned in, in working with our wonderful faculty is that if you hold expectations high for students, but you provide them the support, they'll meet you there. If you lower your expectations and say and, and do that, students will meet you there too. So the key is that, yes, they, they can coexist and they can be rigorous. And if anything, I feel that when you add these components, it enhances critical thinking because now you're making all these other connections that you wouldn't ordinarily see. You know, whether if, if you focus, let's say, if it's a history class that focuses on a very biased history, let's say of our area, uh, specifically because we have about 14 federally recognized tribes, there was huge genocide in our area. And although we may, sometimes we think, well, that was a long time ago. You know, you meet elders that are still, that, that were kind of recipients of that type of abuse and that type of prejudice. And that's still alive with them. So for a student coming into the classroom and having that background, if that's not reflective in the subject that's being taught, that can be, that can be very hurtful and saying, but this is the history of my people. And now it's not being reflected in the classroom. However, when you have it reflected in the classroom, it could bring up a whole bunch of other topics and you can make all these links, whether it is with a social works or whether it is with current demographics or the entire community that can further educate other students into what really is the history of our district. And knowing that I think further enriches conversation, enriches and includes a lot of respect to the people that are here. You know, people say, well, they were here. It's like, no, they are still here. And because of that, and because of, of other communities that maybe are, are no longer here, um, that history has to be relevant and presented because so many find it, um, have a huge connection with that. And it just further, I think, enriches the classroom and it aids to student success as they feel more reflective in the narrative that's being, that's being presented in the work or the, the subject that's being presented by the faculty member or the work um, or the homework that's being given. So yes, 
absolutely it can coexist and it does not negate a certain other history. What it does is give a different perspective. And in many cases, it gives further authenticity to the experience of, of our students. More, more than anything, I think it enhances dialogue. It enhances the subject matter and um, that of students' experience and success. We hear a lot about educators wanting to create safe learning environments for students. Some speculate that teachers might be spending too much time creating safe learning environments at the expense of rigorous academic time. How could a school evaluate whether students' low achievement is the result of limited academic time on task versus their learning abilities? That's a great question. When we look at creating a safe space, I think we have to define what that is. Um, Many times it's understanding who your student community is, being reflective, especially in, in, um, let's say, K-12 classrooms where so much visual is presented. And the more students see themselves reflected in in, um, the classroom space, it does provide a great sense of self-worth, of safety, of respect. And again, when you talk to students, regardless of any level, even at the the college level, the first thing they say is that, I wanna be reflected in my school. I wanna feel safe. I wanna feel embraced. When you spend too much time on it, it's a lot of prep work in order to ensure that there's this kind of holistic approach to the student experience. There is there, are we spending um, too much time? I think that we have to recognize that we live in different times and that the practices of the past don't have to be practices that, that we adopt or we, that we perpetuate. You know, they may not be part of, um, for those of you that, that went into teaching, they're like, oh, the behaviorist approach with call and, call and response, that's not best for student. You have to do this type of, of approach in order for them to learn. There's things that we have to unlearn as educators. And that's fine. And creating a a safe space, I don't see it as spending too much time as I see it as being very thoughtful and reflective of your student community. And I think that is key to having students feel that they belong, that this institution or the school is embracing them as a child or as as an adult. And it's critical to, to their success. Looking at how do we evaluate Assessment is difficult. The question is, what is our assessment? What does it look like? And is it giving us the data that we need to make informed decisions that are best for the school or the institution? And, you know, sometimes the curriculum doesn't always reflect what's on the test. So what happens with the assessment that's being used? You know, do you assess them at different points during their academic journey? You know, for us, we are on a semester so do you assess them at different points during the term to see growth, to see, to see if that's um, being more present? Do you devise different ways to assess students instead of a final? For us, it was a final essay when I was in college and a multiple choice exam. Then I ended up meeting other faculty members that had a different perspective on what assessment should be. Oh, it should be a portfolio of the work that you're best proud of and present that. So one of the questions, so that question when you're looking at um, how can you evaluate, 
I think that it comes down to what type of assessment would be best and reflective of uh, a student experience. And are you testing them during, during certain intervals? With, I have children in the K-12 system here and I had to learn when I would meet with, with teachers and I would see you know, an S or, or, or some type of notation, they would calm me down and they're like, look, this is too early to assess, but they're, they're progressing towards meeting you know, the end of term standards. So sometimes it's how we look at assessment. Um, when you speak to other faculty members I know at our institution, they're looking critically as, uh, why do we assess at all? Why does it have to do this? Do we do a cumulative assessment? Why can't we uh, redesign what assessment looks like? So it, it, I feel like it's a yes and no. It can be done, but I think we have to look critically at the type of assessment being used. And there has to be a lot of faculty teacher input into what, it, because I think they're, they're, aside from parents or guardians or family members, children or students are spending the most time with teachers and they are going to be the ones that are experts in saying you know I had my sons had wonderful teachers and and you know one of the things he said was you know we're assessing them at a point in time they could have had a bad time but that doesn't it's not an end-all to how they are doing or if they're progressing it's like there's other things that we take into consideration so should there be a triangulation of how do you assess a student and make it make it more holistic to see um, if a student is you know learning the subject or concerning their learning abilities? And again, another another part that happens with a lot of students of color is that they're you know they're diagnosed with a learning disability very late in their academic career. It is a lot of analyzing observation educating the family and making these, these questions on, you know, that type of assessment. But again, it comes down to really questioning the assessment instrument. For our college, we did away with assessment as one of the visions for success. You know, we wanted to reduce unit accumulation and the biggest unit accumulation happened with remediation, so remedial classes that were worth a lot of units. So after a while, and, it, and it's not difficult and it's not perfect, was to do away with assessment, use a self-placement mechanism, and now students all enter at transfer level English and math. So that cuts down the time. Now you can say, well, are you dumbing down the curriculum to help them pass through that transfer level math? No, but what you're doing is providing more resources into ass assisting that student to be successful, whether that's a co-requisite class, whether that's tutoring, whether it's the dynamic of the classroom and the curriculum, whether part of it is scaffolding upon skills learned and then going into some of these transfer level requirements that they need. And so I think the question it's, I don't know if I've answered it, but it's, it comes down to how are we assessing? What's the assessment instrument? And are we capturing what we want to know about student abilities and how we can ensure their success in the future? Minerva Flores, the Director of Institutional Effectiveness, Research, Equity, and Grants at Mendocino College. So at this point, I'd like to ask Leonardo Rodriguez to share some of his experiences as a student at Mendocino College. Mr. Rodriguez, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, what was your first language, and, and where you attended elementary and secondary school? 
Hello, my name is Leonardo David Rodriguez. I'm a dreamer, an advocate, a community organizer, a volunteer and the student trustee for Mendocino Community College. I would like to add that DACA has recently been repealed yet again and students like me and students even greater than me are no longer given the opportunity to contribute to our society. And we must urge Congress to pass immigration reform and a pathway to citizenship. I was born in Tabasco, Zacatecas, Mexico and immigrated to the United States at five years old. California has been my home for 15 years now. And when I arrived, I spoke only Spanish. During my time in the Los Angeles area, which is where uh, we moved to first, I attended kindergarten at a charter school, then attended Herrick Elementary School in Silmar, California until third grade. I was able to learn English by first grade and remember being surrounded by faculty and students who resembled me and my families. After the recession and the lack of job opportunities in Southern California, my family and I moved to Ukiah where I attended Grace Hudson Elementary School until fifth grade. At the end of fifth grade, I moved to Kelseyville, California where uh, I attended Mountain Vista Middle School and eventually graduated from Kelseyville High School. And now attend Mendocino College. Yes, now at Mendocino College. <laughs> Tell me about your experience at Great H Grace Hudson Elementary and what advantages that provided you as a student from Mexico. So Grace Hudson was a school that benefited my native language and expanded my learning abilities. Although the staff at the time was not completely reflective of my community or that of native Spanish speakers, my experience was overall positive. I do have to say that I was one of, I think, five students that was moved from fourth grade to fifth grade at the time because of the recession, the budget constraints, and the staffing issues. So my experience isn't really reflective of all students, so I'm only speaking on my experience. Overall, bilingual education is not only vital for success of Latinx students, but can create foundational skills for all students in all communities. I wish more students who have Spanish speaking families like my own would be able to receive a bilingual education. And to me, this is especially important in a state like California, which has a population of around 39 million people and 39.4% of those people are Hispanic. Being able to develop not only a new language, which was English for me, but also keep up with my native language, which was Spanish, was really like a big gift to me. And I still keep that education with me and I still treasure it really. In what ways did the school community learn about you, learn about your family and your culture while you were going to school in K-12? I think at the time there wasn't really a discussion about whether your culture should be presented in school or not. So I don't think the school community tried to learn much about me as most students who moved to a new school, to a new small community. I was asked to introduce myself, but I was not really confident when I was younger, <laughs> not confident enough to share that I was an immigrant from Mexico or that I was undocumented. 
And that, that really just comes from a place where at the time it was taboo to be outspoken about being undocumented. It was taboo to even know Spanish. Uh, there was a lot of Spanish speakers at the time who would pretend not to know Spanish because it was it was hindering to their assimilation experience and being a, American. Compared to Mendocino College where I meet so many new, I met at the time when the campus was open, I would meet a lot of people and I would like to hear about their stories and where they come from and they would reciprocate that. And that would be faculty and students. What were the reactions of other teachers or students when you shared your stories? I think a lot of times when I share my story, especially that I'm a DACA recipient, a lot of people are usually uh, shocked at first and they're like, what, you? And that really just shows that DACA recipients really can be anyone and they can become anyone. I know there's a lot of DACA recipients that are doctors. They have their bachelor's, their master's their homeowners, their lawyers, and they would usually be surprised. As I got older, they would be more understanding. And I would also be more truthful with my experience being not only an immigrant, but an undocumented immigrant, and also being low income as well. I'm Michelle Hutchins, your county superintendent of schools. You're listening to Leonardo Rodriguez, a student at Mendocino College, and we're talking on the topic of equity in education. She's more than a student. He's actually the board representative, um, Mendocino College board rep. Leonardo, tell me some more about the design of the school day. Do you feel the design of a school day was supportive of your learning needs? When we talk about the system and how it can help students. For me, uh, my parents always really grilled me on education and they always wanted me to be on top of things. So growing up, I had a pretty tight schedule at home. So it really transferred over to having a schedule at school, but it supported me as long the system and the schedule supported me as long as I could pull my own weight. And from elementary school to middle school, I was always academically achieving. But when I ran into the block, that block many brown and black students hit, I, I was left to discover and learn through failure how to cope with that block. And I wasn't ever taught in K through 12 how to overcome that block, but really just how to pretend it's not there. And that took a huge toll on my academic success entering high school from uh, a learned experience from before high school. It was not only the schedule, but just the environment. Growing up, looking back at it retroactively, understanding that it was because you felt like you didn't belong. And there were slight comments throughout the week or throughout the day that made you feel like that. Dealing with microaggressions, it really takes a toll it exhausts students of color and they don't realize they're exhausted until they can't achieve what their peers are achieving and their frustration internalizes. That goes back to what Ms. Flores was talking about with establishing a safe learning environment in the classroom. It, it eliminates those microaggressions that you're speaking of right now. 
equity a lot of times has to be implemented through anti-racist policy and anti-racist policy really starts with defining what racism is and really as an institution saying this is what racism is and we are making a promise to be an anti-racist institution and to implement policies that are anti-racist and really that just means analyzing curriculums and understanding that not all students have the same background, that not all students understand originals or the, the basics, because for many students, the originals are not the same as the originals in another area. Just being as a student, I wish I would have been seen as and validated as a person, not just a student because I was always validated as long as I was academically achieving. But the moment I failed or I began to fail, I was completely dropped of support. And that was really hard. And I know that's not a one-time thing that only has happened to me. My first time being validated was by a high school counselor and her name was Tara Williams. And it took me 11 years in the California school system to feel this support. And now my community supports me, my family supports me, and Mendocino College supports me. Uh, they don't see me as just a student, but as a person who has dreams and aspirations. And I no longer feel I have to be a perfect robot to be noticed or even let alone be supported. You just answered five of the questions that I had <laughs> listed for you here. And so we're going to take a little different twist. Um, do you feel your education experience embraced you as a person and your background? I think at times, yes, and at times, no. I think it embraced my curiosity when that curiosity was in categories that are already existing like math, science. But the thing is, it was always through a, a lens that wasn't my own. So I had to fit my curiosity and change it to, to get to a point where I was being curious about the things fellow white peers were curious about and really wanting to learn and be like white peers because I thought that was the example and it really left a lot of my skills abandoned and you know k through 12 is supposed to build our skills so that we're ready for college and then through college we already have a skill set that's been fortified and grown so that's not always the case for me it was really history and english that i really enjoyed and that really was because i was learning about other cultures and other new things that really receiving what I wanted to be taught, which was about new things that weren't like what I was in. Was your educational experience at the K-12 or college level reflective of you and your experiences? Did you have a curriculum or resources that were culturally inclusive? K through 12 was not, I didn't find resources like that, that were culturally 
reflective. And when they were, it was through a third party, like Migrant Ed or another organization coming in and being that support. But again, they're not always able to provide all the support. In college, it is completely different, at least at um, Mendocino College. And that's really because faculty is reflective of the community. And it also, they also understand that college isn't your whole entire life and that you're also a person and you have needs and you have a family and you have a job and, you know, things happen in your life. And really having faculty that understands that has really contributed to my academic success now. That makes me want to ask you, if you see school as a reproduction of social constructs that mirror social realities, or is it a place for reform where there can actually be modification of social reality? My educational experience and knowledge I've accumulated leads me to see what is a fact. And the fact is the educational system from kindergarten to 12th grade is not only a reproduction of social constructs, but serves to uphold them at times. We see time and time again, examples of the school to prison pipeline, the large presence of law enforcement and the lack of resources counselors who are adequately trained in black and brown and impoverished communities. It is only through college and through higher education like that in community colleges that I see the vital role education will play in being an agent for change. Through anti-racist policies and student retention initiatives, colleges are able to hinder and combat the social construct of the United States and it leads colleges to be transformative like HBCUs have and are transformative. Schools undoubtedly shape our youth who will grow up to change our world. And we must create a safe and inclusive environment that does not place emphasis on American ideals, but rather an emphasis on learning with culturally relevant information with staff that reflects a student's community, unsegregated funding, and uh, an emphasis on staff training. You know, all children must thrive. You're listening to Leonardo Rodriguez, a student at Mendocino College, and we're talking on the topic of equity in education. Leonardo, if you were in charge of designing schools, what would you change and what would you design that would help others, other students like you, achieve better? First... I would uh, include all members of a community in the conversation. Uh, we, see, we see now there's counties that are 30, 40% Hispanic, and you see the school boards being all white. And although you can say we're having a conversation, that conversation is really saying, This is our table and we're inviting you to it. But the table isn't owned by anyone. It should be a collective. Schools should start as a community conversation and really as a community deciding what are our priorities. And to me, 
education should be a place where kids are able to dream and then through education have the tools to make those dreams a reality. Again, the words of Leonardo Rodriguez, student at Mendocino College. Earlier in the hour, we heard from Minerva Flores, the Director of Institutional Effectiveness. I think that's, that was really powerful. Um, is everything, yeah, everything that should be said, it's different when it comes from a student. Yeah, it Very really different. is. It really Because then it's here. Then everybody's like, oh, okay, this goes beyond someone's agenda. This goes to the heart of who, are, who the recipients are. And I think that's, that's really hard to, for people to remember. Like, this is for the future of students, for the future of adults. And to, to be very intentional with how we present information, what resources we provide. One of the important things that we always, that we tend to forget is to give students that time to say, if now's not the right time for you, you can come back and we're always going to be here. Um, that, and that's a lot for, you know, community college students, um, students in general. One of the things that I think sometimes lacks at the four-year is that, you know, it's always go, go, go. And we understand that a lot of our students are part-time. Um, they may not be eligible for all the financial aid, so there's that restriction. They might be the primary income or provide income to the household. They may have children. They may have to take care of their siblings. And with COVID, it just changed yes. everything. And that's when I think that taught us a lot in, oh, no, not everyone has a Chromebook. A Chrome <laughs> not everyone has great internet connection. Not everyone can be turning in stuff when they have to assist their younger siblings also on Zoom. So there's all these things that came into effect in us understanding that our community is, is different they have different needs and we need to meet those needs as fast as possible. Yeah. And, and now it was just part you know, technical and, and um, on resource wise, but yeah, you know, it taught us a lot and it keeps teaching us that these, these gaps do exist. And sometimes it's, you see it more prevalent with people of color. Yeah. Um, yeah you, you saying all that, it just, it makes it real that it's not just an anecdotal story. <laughs> Yeah, but that but that it's affecting um, students and students are aware of this and I'm I'm jealous to a point where I think this generation of students have been able to explore that part more. I don't know if social media has kind of opened up the conversation to make the world more accessible, to make ideas more accessible, or the fact that our society is changing, our community is changing, and yeah, it makes me hopeful that, you know, there's just some, sometimes people need to let go of um, um, confusion or fear of the unknown. And yeah. my, my favorite Baldwin quote was like, if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. And that's, I think, what we're always doing. And I think students show that better than anyone. It's like, yeah, you can have these conversations, but we're the ones that are affected the most. And I, Leonardo was part of a, one of our, his thing is first board meeting. And he said something because there was conversation about, well, you know, some people like to work from home and should we reopen? And Leonardo said something and I told the president and I was like, what Leonardo said just, just brought it all home. And he said, we want to come back to campus. For many of us, 
that's our only escape. <laughs> that's where we get the most connection. That's where we get the most progress. That's an experience that we have to have. And it just reminded us all that there's all these logistics in coming back in person. It is urgent for us to have, to no longer interrupt the, the academic career of students in terms of being, in, being on the, the campus physically. I think that's definitely true though, how showing us what we don't see really does help. I would always compare myself to fellow like peers who were going to UCs and UC Berkeley and UC Davis and UCLA. And then you really like hear the stories of people of color going to those colleges and they're like, I was put on academic probation <laughs> my first year. Like the, I almost got kicked out of college. Like, yeah. And it's really because they really didn't have the, the skills they really, they thought they had. Because yeah. mm -hmm. it's like, you can have, you know, they prep you for the A through G requirements, your AP, and then you get there and you're like, where, when I went to college, I was like, wow, not all Mexicans are poor. Because I, that was the first time oh my, I, met, yeah. <laughs> I met, I met other Latinos that were wealthy and I was like, wow, this is weird. So your parents aren't farm workers? No. Oh, that's weird. And my big thing was, you have a car? <laughs> oh, yeah, my parents bought it for me. And all of this work comes from that place of love and respect. And it's hard to see these things. They have to be faced. Because although we weren't responsible for creating some of these inequities, we have to make a choice whether we perpetuate them or we are thoughtful and analyzing to dismantle them to make the experience for students that much richer, more relevant to, to them and their families, and be appreciative of the wonderful richness of capital that they bring as students and as individuals. So a big thank you to my guests, Minerva Flores, Director of Institutional Effectiveness, Research, Equity, and Grants, and Leonardo Rodriguez, a student at Mendocino College. This is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools. Thank you for listening to Inside Education. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.